Hello, I'm Daniel Prusilides. Welcome to The Long Way, a podcast of short episodes with long perspectives on building the common good. It's good to be with you again for the fifth episode of The Long Way, a podcast of Think Tank Cardus. Cardus is a pretty unique organization. We're a think tank dedicated to producing public policy, public arguments, and encouraging cultural habits that help society in three ways. Helping us live together well, honoring our genuine differences, and protecting the vulnerable. We've dedicated the first season of The Long Way to the long process of rebuilding those things which have been damaged or destroyed, I suppose, by the necessary yet costly disruption to our lives by the coronavirus pandemic. Today's episode is called Shaken Foundations. We'll be looking at the social structures that have cracked or shattered because of the pandemic. One of the issues we'll look at will be inequality. That certainly showed up in education, so we'll turn to field reporter Peter Stockland for more on that. But that's a little later on. First, let's get to our special guest, Jamil Giovanni. He's author of the book, Why Young Men? He's the Government of Ontario's Advocate for Community Opportunities, and he's the Managing Director of Road Home Research and Analysis, which is worth checking out, by the way, at roadhome.ca. Jamil, it's great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. Happy to be here. You know, we all experience um, the pandemic differently. Um, if there's if there's job loss uh, or family strife, for example, uh, that's obviously more difficult. Um, for some of us, it's easier. That in the, the entire experience of this, uh, from your observations and your travels, are are there any any cracks in Canada's uh, social structure that you believe the the whole lockdown experience has exposed? Yeah, there. I mean, there are a few things I think that are happening right now. So one is that, you know, people who are on, let's say, less stable foundation in their lives, whether that's economic or um, social, um, I think that the lockdown is a, is a threat to destabilizing your life in a way that can be really hard to recover from. For example, you know, imagine that you are a, a single mom who barely made it out of high school and has decided for the first time to get go to college so that you can get um, a, a better paying job and provide for your family. And then COVID hits and all of a sudden you're, you're not in school anymore. You may not um, be very motivated to go back because it was a leap of faith to, to register for your college program in the first place. And you could find this to be very discouraging. So there are a lot of people in situations like that where I think the lockdown is going to shake up their world in a way that might be hard to come back from. Um, in a more structural way, I suppose, the biggest challenge we have is, you know, we already had a very high youth unemployment rate across the country. And when I say high, I mean relative to the general unemployment rate. And we're seeing uh, that the youth unemployment rate has gotten much, much worse. It's uh, nearly 50%. Um, which is the highest on record since we started recording that data in 1976 in Canada. So to me, the lack of infrastructure we had in place to really help young people enter the labor market, 
find a long-term employable skill set and build a life, um, you know, with all the affordability concerns and, and all the issues that face young workers in terms of having some of the things their parents had, all of that has been worsened by COVID. And the data we've been able to look at related to previous recessions shows that if you're a young worker who's entered the, the labor force during a recession, you may never recover the earnings that you lost from the beginning. It may be a perennial disadvantage throughout the rest of your career. So these are, these are challenges that you know, governments and policymakers and, and businesses as well, along with workers, need to take very seriously so that we can um, you know, make sure the future of our country is well positioned for success and that COVID doesn't haunt us uh, for you know, decades to come in, in terms of limiting the, the career options that, that our young workers have. Well, that, I mean, that you, I think you raised something that's very important there, especially when it comes to work, because one of the things that, you know, Cardis has talked about a lot uh, lately, um, really even since the beginning of Cardis, is the, the importance of work, not just as an income, but the importance of work for identity, the importance of work for uh, your your social well being, your mental well being, even for your physical health, there is um, there's an effect of work or lack of work uh, on that. So, how do you take that into account as we are, you know, looking forward? I hope to a a post COVID period. You know, a lot of provinces have started easing up their measures. Economies are starting to open up. Many European economies are further ahead on that than many parts of Canada are. How do we take all of that into account in a way that works both for, for young people, but also for, for older workers? I can't imagine the difficulty, for example, of someone, say, who's 50, 55 and is, is out of work. That's a, that's a terrible time to be looking for a job. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, certainly the, the challenges are not unique to any age group or generation, um, and they're, they're very acute for, for many people across the country. I think part of this is, is an opportunity to examine how we imagine government supporting people to work. I mean, traditionally, we've looked at it as pretty, pretty binary, where either you have a job um, and then the government doesn't have much to do with your day-to-day -day life as far as, you know, earning your wages is concerned. Um, or you don't have a job and the government is there to provide unemployment benefits or social assistance. The, the middle ground, though, I think is, are there ways that government support can actually facilitate job creation in a much more direct way? So there are uh, many economists and writers exploring such policies uh, in a theoretical sense, many of whom are in the United States. I'm thinking of uh, someone like Oren Cass, for example, um, who has seen some traction in his work from uh, Republican leaders like Marco Rubio and Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley, who have been looking at, you know, interestingly, from a conservative perspective, which I think is a is counterculture in some sense, because it's uh, not embracing small government, but I think embracing effective government, how do you how could government grants or subsidies be used to create job opportunities for people who may otherwise be left in the unemployment line, or 
only find work that is unsustainable for supporting a family. So there have been a lot of different ideas around wage subsidies, for example, or empowering employers to do more training of workers so that uh, the training that is provided is more directly relevant to being able to enter and succeed in the workforce. And these sorts of innovations, I think, are going, you know, they, they were kind of a pipe dream a few months ago, but because of COVID, I think there's real opportunity to apply some of these ideas. And my hope is that we start to realize that government can play this facilitating role um, and, and sort of move beyond this, this binary of either you're unemployed or you're employed and, and that the government actually has a relationship with, with workers and businesses based on what's actually necessary to give people job opportunities. Because as you pointed out, um, it's more than just the economic benefit. There's tremendous cultural and social benefits as well. And uh, I think we all have a collective interest in having a stable, healthy society and, uh, and jobs are, are integral to that. You know, you wrote recently in the National Post that the, the government, I guess maybe even the social response to COVID-19, the lockdowns, and even the government assistance programs risk making inequality worse. What did you mean by that? Yeah, well, you know, I think there have been a number of really good initiatives from provincial governments and the federal government in Canada that are designed to help people through this crisis. However, as a person who works with governments, I know that in order to reach some of the people who need this assistance, this financial assistance, um, governments typically rely on civil society. They rely on charities, they rely on churches, they rely on community networks because the government isn't well designed and I don't think it even should be to, to know the, the intricacies of our lives and how to find the people in our neighborhoods and in our communities who are most isolated because of poverty, because of mental health issues, because of a uh, you know, variety of, 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 of challenges they may face. So I think that, you know, governments know that. And then when they put this money out there, I think they also know that there are a lot of people who need it, who are not going to get it. And so to me, that is a, a sign of a couple of things. One, that government actually needs civil society more than it often acknowledges and it, and it should acknowledge it more that in order to be effective, it needs these community partners and these faith-based organizations and all these folks that, that connect the community to government in many cases. Um, but then also I think the government needs to recognize that a lot of its efforts will have helped many people, but it will not have helped many others. And therefore, I think the government needs to have a plan for how to support some of these folks who may not have been reached by the, uh, by the financial supports that have been introduced during COVID. And to me, that reflects a bigger, more substantive commitment to addressing inequality that I think it, you know, for I, you know, my ethics tell me that governments have that commitment either way, but I think those commitments become even more intense, let's say, uh, more important when the, when governments are involved in, in actually making inequality worse by shutting down the economy. I think there's a responsibility that governments have made in return to help with uh, recovery and recovery, I think also includes not just opening up businesses or helping people pay commercial rents or whatever the case, but also to helping mend some of the broken community relationships that were severed due to the lockdown. 
I think you you were you're right to point to the need for civil society and for the role that charity plays, the charitable sector plays in all of this and kind of connecting government to the people who to whom it needs to be connected. Uh, but you know, charities themselves are facing some real challenges as the economy goes down, donations go down, uh, and now the charitable sector itself is in crisis. Uh, how do you get how do you get the charitable sector healthy so that it can play its role both now and post crisis? Yeah, it's it's a great question, and I know there are a few different ways people are thinking about this. I mean, the most direct one is, you know, can the government provide financial support to charities to make up the difference in what they've lost? I don't know if that's a feasible idea in every case, just because of the sheer amount of money that it would cost, and the obviously the the many competing demands for government resources right now. But there are examples of that in terms of putting money out there for social services relief and making sure that uh, charities are also respected as employers and that they have the support needed to maintain their staff and continue creating jobs for people. Uh, The other, uh, some of the other ideas I've seen, and I know Cardis has been involved in uh, some uh, matching funds proposals where the government tries to encourage philanthropy by saying, you know, up until a certain amount of money, if a charity is able to raise this, then the government will match that. And I think there's something really important about those sorts of approaches, because I do think we want to continue to cultivate a, a spirit of generosity in our society. And that even though we are all going through some, some difficult times right now, we still have a, a, a responsibility to care for those who are most disadvantaged, who are often served by the charities that would be receiving those matching funds. So I think that's an idea that I expect to pick up steam as the economy comes back together and people feel more secure in making such donations. Um, and then, of course, the other approach to it is, you know, is there a way for, for charities and governments to better value the contributions of the sector to our country in the first place. And I think that's a, an important step in terms of government being able to properly gauge, you know, what is the value of some of these services that have been lost? And um, is there a way to, whether it's through uh, procurement processes or other means for the government to rely on the sector to deliver some services that the government is going to need to pay for or perhaps in some cases the government was delivering itself, but now can can better appreciate the ability of the charitable sector to do so. And I, I think that's a that's a trickier uh, area of policy, but I think it's one that holds some real promise if if this is taken as a as an opportunity for charities and governments to communicate better. Um, which I would say, you know, has been a bit, bit of a mixed bag so far as far as. Uh, leaders in the charitable sector and leaders in the public sector having the right conversations. But my hope is that uh, that will be one of the legacy pieces mm. coming out of this is that those conversations are better and, and thus the relationship between the sector and governments are, are improved. Jamil Giovanni, thank you very much. Always insightful. Always good to talk to you. Yes. Thank you, Daniel. Appreciate your time.
The issue of inequality is not new, but it's certainly shown up in a new light through pandemic lockdowns. One area where that's especially true is education. Convivium.ca editor and our field reporter Peter Stockland is in Montreal with more on that. In early May, I spent a week doing interviews for Convivium.ca on how Ontario's independent schools were faring in the face of the COVID-19 lockdown. The stories I heard were inspiring in what they said about community, flexibility and innovation at five schools across the province. While I was doing that journalism work, my colleague David Hunt, Cardus's Director of Education, was putting the finishing touches to a policy paper on his exploration of Ontario's government-run schools. I spoke with David about the policy brief, which recommends the province let its education dollars follow each student to whichever school each student decides to attend. In the course of that discussion, David also outlined the need for the change, especially given the cracks in Ontario's education system that the pandemic has exposed. One of the worst, he says, is the system's inability to respond nimbly to a crisis like COVID-19. The response from the government was very slow. It took 12 days for the Ontario public school system to set forth its, its lockdown policy. It took a further 13 days uh, for learning to resume, and and when it did resume, it was in a a very limited form, uh, remote online learning, where although there there were enrichment uh, materials available online and some uh, instruction, uh, teacher-led instruction, for the most part, it was quite limited. One of the critical ill effects of that inflexibility, David argues, is the deepening of social and economic inequalities, as those who need education the most can't get it because the system is unable to respond to anyone's needs, let alone those with special needs. So where we see a particular inequity within the system is when it comes to students with special needs. In, in my home province of British Columbia, so the funding follows the student. So and, and, and the funding does not discriminate based on where you attend school like it does in Ontario. And, and that's a big problem. So for students who are independent schools in Ontario, they receive no funding whatsoever for, the, for those who have special needs. So they're forced to then uh, attend at, at public schools, which may not be the best fit for them. A system that's inflexible, inequitable, and inefficient needs the discipline of dollars following the child to bring itself back to proper and ready function, David says noting that while independent schools have their foundation in a strong sense of community, they also have the discipline of parents who are part of that community being able to decide where and how to spend tuition dollars on their children. It's a bold proposal, but one he's optimistic there will be open ears to hear in Ontario's educational establishment. What I'm hoping for is that this will help shift the conversation around K-12 education so that we see it in a, in a new light where we can begin to have some healthy conversations around welcoming diversity and innovation within the sector. So in that sense, I'm optimistic. Uh, but I also believe uh, this will plant the seeds for us uh, to begin to discuss and embrace uh, a true educational pluralism where we acknowledge that not all kids are the same Therefore, a one-size-fits-all approach doesn't work. And moreover, uh, it really is time that we respect uh, the view that all education is a merit good, meaning that it's not just the individual and the family and the school community that benefit from one's education, but it's 
all of society that benefits, and that's the way we need to view all of education. What happens next is entirely in the hands of the Ontario government, and it's a natural response of bureaucratic caution to resist change until it's proven to work. In this case, it's not only been tried, there's actually a workable model presented by Ontario's independent schools. No one I spoke to in my journalistic research claimed it was a perfect model by any means. But the reality is, it was nimble and fully functional at a time of major crisis. The same simply couldn't be said for the government-run alternative. Food for policy thought. For The Long Way, I'm Peter Stockland. Just as we do in every episode, let's connect with The Long Way producer, Rachel DeBrun, for some final thoughts. Rachel, I thought one of the most important things that Jamil mentioned in his comments is that governments need to rediscover and rebuild their connections to civil society and charity as we try to rebuild for the future. Do you sense that there's enough cultural appreciation among decision makers for those connections and partnerships to see that sort of thing happen? In short, no. And I really wish that there was more language around that because Jamil put it so beautifully how civil society is able to help make government more effective. I mean, we all experience how the government paints in such broad strokes, how civil society, religious communities, those community level organizations are able to reach into the nooks and crannies, able to address the needs of the vulnerable who the government just can't effectively address their needs. And that relationship is a, is something that has so much potential in it. And I'm not seeing a lot of language around uh, making it stronger around addressing it. I mean, have you seen anything in that regard? I haven't seen enough of it, I think. I think there hasn't been enough of that understanding stated publicly. And I think that's what I would look for more. Mm. And I think one way that that's uh, another way that that we get at it is, uh, interestingly enough, through the the same things that Peter Stockland and David Hunt were talking about uh, in the field report we just listened to. And, and that is that, you know, just as you were saying about charity, and the, the and civil society being able to make government more effective because there are diverse needs because there are so many communities and you know uniquenesses among all of those various communities it's the same thing in education one size doesn't fit all there are some unique needs and you need that kind of diverse ecosystem and one way that we can encourage that is through a much more equitable uh, funding model. So it's interesting to see, on the one hand, Jamil talk about this on a civil society level, but Peter and David talking about it on an education level. Yeah, and and I liked what Peter said. I mean, we can wait until it's proven to work, or now is is at its worst such a time of upheaval and at its best an opportunity to look at our systems to look at the government's relationship with charities the government's relationship with education and to say okay when we land back on our feet how are we going to land this is an opportunity to ask ourselves what is and isn't working and maybe be a little creative about what a better future could look like Okay, Rachel, you get the last word on that. Thank you and that brings us to the end of another episode of The Long Way 
Thank you, everyone, for listening. And don't forget to catch our next episode, last episode of the season, this one with Ashley Chalinor from the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, where we'll talk a little bit more about the economy and especially small business. For the entire team at Cardis, I'm Daniel Prusilides.